Thank you for listening to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. For copyright and disclaimers, as well as information about how to contact the iCritical Care staff, please listen to the notice at the end of this podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Margaret Parker. Joining us today is Carol E. Nicholson, MD, MS, FAAP, Project Scientist for the Collaborative Pediatric Critical Care Research Network, or CPCCRN, Program Director for Pediatric Critical Care and Rehabilitation Research, PCCR. Dr. Nicholson is a medical officer of the Eunice Kennedy Shriver National Institute of Child Health and Human Development in Bethesda, Maryland, and is with us today to discuss her latest article published in the July Pediatric Critical Care Medicine titled, The Collaborative Pediatric Critical Care Research Network Critical Pertussis Study, Collaborative Research in Pediatric Critical Care Medicine, published in Pediatric Critical Care Medicine 2011, Volume 12, pages 387 to 392. Thank you for being here, Dr. Nicholson. Thank you for having me. Carol, would you please start by giving us some background on the Collaborative Pediatric Critical Care Research Network? Sure. Um, The Collaborative Pediatric Critical Care Research Network was founded in 2005, funded by and supported by the NICHD, the Eunice Kennedy Shriver uh, National Institute of Child Health and Human Development. And uh, it consists of a network of seven tertiary care uh, pediatric critical care services, each headed by a pediatric intensivist interested in research. Uh, And we support uh, a full-time research coordinator and PI support and alternate uh, PI salary support so that the research is ongoing and collaborative at all times. So the the uh, network seeks to improve the care of children with critical and complex illnesses. As you know, most children that enter our units have more than one organ system involved, and so it's not always possible to just ask an institute that's centered around an organ system, as many at the NIH are, to support the research that's needed. So we're trying to make things better for children. And also, we have a developmental aspect in that we'd like to uh, see research development in a formal sense within our field. Why did you decide to study pertussis? Well, I think every pediatrician knows or has sensed that despite immunization coverage, we continue to see critically ill infants with pertussis illness. And uh, that's been going on for some time. There have been various changes in the vaccine strategies. And uh, what happened was, just as our network was starting, there was an interest in adolescent immunization and in understanding why this persists. And so there was an increase in the amount of basic and clinical research around that question. Uh, There is a, at the time, there was a program where government scientists could compete for funding called Unmet Needs uh, in the DHHS. And so along with a co-PI from CDC, uh, who's not involved anymore, uh, we competed, I was the PI, and we competed for uh, the funding. And we didn't expect to get it, but guess what? We did. (laughs) That's about why we did it. Um, We designed it, and I also thought it was an opportunity since most of my PIs in my network Um, they weren't really familiar with NIH funding. They 
they weren't familiar with everything that would be required, and here was a protocol and something that had already been double peer reviewed in the government, and you know a lot of things about it were already done, the prioritization and so forth. So they decided to adopt it as their first protocol at my suggestion, and they did. Great. Would you tell us about the study? Sure. The study is uh, one, uh, well, first of all, our CAPCORN involves units that have 17,000 PICU admissions a year. And then we use an outside site business plan so that the CAPCORN sites supervise outside sites. And uh, in total, we have 27 sites and we're uh, using enhanced and passive surveillance taught to us by our CDC colleagues in the very beginning to assess 33,000 PICU admissions a year for the presence of critical pertussis. And if you look in the literature, you'll see that there's lots of, you know, sort of retrospective looks at critical pertussis, not in real time, though, and not prospectively. Usually they look back over several decades because this is a sporadic occurrence. So we use a structure of enhanced and passive surveillance at 27 sites. And we have a site PI at each site who's responsible for the final decision about eligibility for the study. All of the children um, in the study have been either culture positive or culture and PCR positive. So we have no doubt that they had pertussis and, uh, and that they're critically ill because they've been admitted to a critical care unit. No one's ever done that before. How many children are you planning to study? Well, we promised the secretary's office that we'd study 200, and we're definitely going to do that. Enrollment began in June of 2008, and so far we've we've identified 140 cases and consented 131. So we're not too far from our goal. And what are you doing in the study? Well, it's a descriptive study. The first aim of the study is to characterize the acute care course of critical pertussis so that we understand the characteristics of the child, the change over time, the level of support required. Many of these children are sick, and we look at data points daily and every day in the pediatric ICU. We uh, try to characterize some of the demographic differences and then look at what children went on to die, who, who required advanced levels of critical care support, such as ECMO, exchange transfusion, plasma, or leukapheresis. So those are the things we look at. We look at uh, hemodynamics. Um, We just try to characterize the critical care course. And are you going to follow these children up, uh, at least the survivors, following their ICU stay? We're trying. Well, in our protocol now, one of our specific aims is, is that all of those who were infants in our study uh, at the time of their enrollment are uh, offered assessment, developmental assessment, using the Mullen uh, skills, which have been validated now down to five weeks of age or two months of age. It's very interesting. And uh, yes, we do their assessment at around 12 months of age. An interesting part for me has been getting intensivists to master uh, the Mullen scales because even if they are going to delegate the performance of the assessment to uh, another professional, they are uh, required to become competent with the tool and what it means, and that's the real opportunity, I think, for pediatric intensivists. 
How is your study proceeding? Well, it's been going fine. We've um, identified 140. We've consented 131. And I believe that there's a little outbreak somewhere that just happened at the end of last week. And so we're actually having more than that. But for our interim analysis that we're preparing to publish, we have uh, data through PICU discharge on 127 children. Where are your sites located? Oh, all over. Uh, We have one in Canada. Otherwise, they're all in the lower 48. Uh, We don't have one in Alaska or Hawaii or Puerto Rico, but they're all over the country. And you have a good distribution of um, demographics in your population? We do. In the Capcorn itself, the Capcorn is particularly formulated, right, so that it has the ethnic distribution of the United States. So uh, we have uh, 20% African-American children, um, 19% Hispanic children, as the Capcorn is founded. I mean, that's the way it's formulated so that there's geographic and especially ethnic distribution of the children. What are the institutions in the Capcorn? The Capcorn institutions, there's seven awards and there's eight hospitals because you're allowed to apply as a consortium, and one of the successful applicants was a consortium between Children's Hospital Los Angeles and UCLA. And every time I say that, people say, how did they do that? But they did it. Intensivists can do a lot. (laughs) with When properly motivated. Yes, they did it. So that's one site. And then we have uh, Phoenix, Arizona. We have two sites in Michigan, the University of Michigan and uh, Wayne State University in Detroit. We have two sites in Pennsylvania, uh, University of Pittsburgh and Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. We have uh, another site at National Children's Medical Center in Washington, D.C., so that's a pretty good geographic distribution. Mm-hmm. And most importantly, the PI expertise is also diverse. In other words, when you're the one that goes to the NIH and tries to found the critical care program, you have to think, do you want to have you know, PIs who are all interested in one area, or do you want to have diversity? And since I wanted it to be a multidisciplinary look, I mean, I wanted to be able to look at pediatric critical care with all of our expertise. So I have a multidisciplinary group of PIs, and that's deliberate. That's an interesting and challenging group to get together. Yeah. Going back to your paper, there was uh, it was noted in your paper that pertussis, uh, at least critical pertussis, seemed to be more common in girls than in boys. I don't recall if it was yeah. mortality um, was higher. The People have been recording pertussis, you know, since the time of Pasteur. As a matter of fact, they're a very active uh, research institute, the Pasteur Institute in that arena. And one of the things that's always been reported is that if you look at a series of fatal pertussis, which were reported retrospectively in the literature up until this time when we began our study, that there were more girls who died of pertussis than boys. And and there's been a lot of speculation, um, for example, that it had something to do with um, the immune response in boys uh, is more likely to be Th1 or to have a stronger Th1 uh, component than in girls. Uh, And there's been variety of speculation. If you were to read all of this, you would... You would learn about that. But we're not finding that so far. Ours are 50-50 in deaths and in uh, enrollment. So 
we're not confirming that, and we, we're not sure why. Do you have preliminary data on the 120 or so children that you've enrolled? We do, we do uh, and there's some interesting findings. These are small children. Um, they tend to be uh, smaller survivors, those very sick who require very advanced support or are uh, or go on to die tend to be smaller than the survivors for age, if you use the <laughs> pediatric standards, both in uh, height, weight, and a little bit in head circumference. Um, we looked at gestational age, and 27% uh, of our patients are, are, are less than 37 weeks gestational age. Interesting. Almost half of the children in our study are uh, Hispanic or Latino. And as you know, in the government, uh, race is reported separately from ethnicity. So Hispanic, Latino uh, origin by ethnicity uh, is reported in almost half of the cases. And we think that is because of the outbreaks in California, which because of our distribution and our outside sites, we were able to capture a lot of them. But we're not sure yet. Uh, we're in the analysis phase of whether that's significant or not. In California, there's a large portion of the population is Hispanic. So it doesn't necessarily mean that they're more susceptible to the disease. Are most of the patients enrolled infants? They are. Um, we have a histogram, you'll see it when we publish our interim analysis, but um, we have a couple of adolescents. We have, I think, two toddlers, and all the rest are infants. And of the infants, uh, they're virtually all uh, less than six months old. In your paper, you have a graph of the incidence of pertussis over many years. Uh -huh. And with the institution of immunization, uh, probably in the 50s, the incidence of pertussis fell to almost nothing, mm -hmm. um, then started to go back up. And there was yeah. a peak around 2005. Can you enlighten well, us on that? I'm not an epidemiologist or an, uh, you know, an infectious disease specialist or a vaccine specialist. But um, we're not sure why that happened, except that some information has emerged about the vaccines. Um, uh, Vaccine-induced immunity only lasts five years, and uh, cohorts of people that babies are exposed to who have only had childhood immunization might actually have pertussis and give it to babies. Does that make sense? It absolutely does, and I, okay. I, I, I'm sure that... There's a lot of adult pertussis out there that doesn't get recognized, and um, I'm sure babies who have not completed their immunization are at the highest risk. It makes complete sense to me that most of your patients would be under six months. Uh-huh. Yes. And, you know, another thing to keep in mind with all of this is that there, um, the, the vaccine and infectious disease world and the public health world is you know, they make substantial efforts and really valiant efforts to control the disease, and it's been very difficult. Vaccine coverage in our country, according to the official recommendations, is of around 90%, and yet we still see this critical pertussis illness. So one thing that's going on just recently, just in the last few months, the, um, one of the people in the secretary's office told me that they're now offering the vaccine to pregnant women. Uh, in late pregnancy, 
and uh, that there's only limited data available about its um, about its use in that regard. But uh, it does have e efficacy in immunity in the newborn, apparently. Now that's a long ways from everybody doing that, Margaret, right? Right, but that's an <laughs> interesting way to approach it. Um, yeah. I, I believe and our neonatal ICU uh, immunizes new parents before they take the baby home. That's what's done in France. It's called cocooning, and it's yes. very effective, especially if you do the whole household, you know, immunize the whole household. What are the next steps in studying pertussis? Well, I think for us as intensivists, that's a, that's a very good question. We're finding that the mortality in critical pertussis is about double uh, what we expect in Capcorn units in general, okay? Mm -hmm. So it's quite high. Um, in Capcorn units in general, uh, our mortality rate is about 4 to 5%, and the uh, critical pertussis mortality rate is... 14%. So we have some ideas in the fire. Uh, we'd like to investigate uh, both the incidence of pulmonary hypertension and whether we should be monitoring these children with echocardiography when they first present. Interesting. Secondly, whether that the information from such echocardiography would be uh, useful in guiding the decision to go to uh, therapies, which in very small cohorts have offered some hope anyway. For example, leukapheresis, plasmapheresis, uh, exchange transfusion, and ECMO. Uh, but we, um, uh, the numbers are too small to make sure to, to know that. And so one of the things we're looking at is a partnership with the British investigators at Great Ormond Street around those issues. Well, that'll be an interesting collaboration as well. Yeah. Do you have any final comments you'd like to make? I don't, Margaret. Thank you for interviewing me. I hope you found out what you wanted to find out. <laughs> well, thank you very much, Carol. We've been talking with Dr. Carol E. Nicholson from the Eunice Kennedy Shriver National Institute of Child Health and Human Development in Bethesda, Maryland, about her article, The Collaborative Pediatric Critical Care Research Network Critical Pertussis Study, Collaborative Research in Pediatric Critical Care Medicine, published in Pediatric Critical Care Medicine in July 2011. This concludes our podcast. Look for future podcasts featuring a wide variety of information important to critical care practitioners, including interviews with authors and discussions with prominent members of the critical care community. Visit www.sccm.org slash iCriticalCare for more information. For the iCriticalCare podcast, I'm Dr. Margaret Parker. If you are unable to attend one of SCCM's live courses, you can view the educational sessions on your own time and at your own pace through SCCM On Demand. Videos containing both slides and lectures from our courses are available 45 days after the live event. Events such as SCCM's world-renowned board review courses and even Congress are now available on demand. For more information or to order an on-demand course, visit www.sccm.org store or ask to speak with a customer service representative. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. 
Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. Your host is Margaret Parker, MD, FCCM, guest podcast editor for pediatrics. Dr. Parker is director of the Pediatric Intensive Care Unit at Stony Brook University in Stony Brook, New York. She also is a professor of pediatrics at Stony Brook University Medical Center. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email iCriticalCare at sccm.org or info at sccm.org.